0: This program has been made possible through the support of Vanda, creators of Solutions for Non-24 Disorder. ACB thanks Vanda for their support. Learn more about Non-24 by visiting their website at www.non24.com. The following program may contain topics and themes of an adult nature and may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised.
1: Opinions
2: expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Well, hello everyone. I'm going to get started. So my name is uh, Antoinette Cervantes. I am the second vice president for ACB students. Um, Before I hand it over to our host. Um, I want to give everybody the opening CEU code. And that is 31871. So again, my name is Antoinette. And today we have Holly Scott Gardner, who is going to be our host. And Holly is a disability rights advocate. And she also has her is getting her MLA so, uh, in social and public policy. And we also have Laura Miller, who is a uh, sex educator.
3: Right now, I'll give it to Holly to start us off. Hi everyone, Um, I'm so glad to see so many of you here. This is going to be, I think, a really exciting seminar. I'm really excited about it, actually. And we're going to talk about various different things to do with sex and disability and sexuality and cover various different topics such as consent and sex education. And I'm super excited that I get to ask Laura Miller a lot of different questions. So thank you for the introduction to, to me. Yes, I am a um, currently a master's student in social and public policy. I'll be heading into my PhD in law in February, and I have a background in disability rights advocacy, but also specifically to do with um, particularly sexual violence and domestic abuse and violence. So advocating for the rights of disabled survivors of abuse and violence. So that's kind of my background coming into this. And um, I'd love to ask Laura Miller to introduce herself a little bit more.
1: Thank you, Holly and ACB and everyone for this conversation today. I really appreciate it. Um, My name is Laura Miller. I use she, her pronouns. Um, I identify as white, cisgender, um, and I am a queer woman doing sex education research in the blind community. Um, I'm also a mom of a 13 year old, um, who has given me lots of real world experience parenting and having these conversations around consent and what that is like out in the world. Um, and then I also, work, like I said, as a sex educator and researcher in our community, working on making um, sex education accessible to folks who are blind and visually impaired. And more recently, um, those conversations have really um, shifted to building a culture of consent and what it means to have consent in our everyday interactions. Um, As blind people, as parents of blind folks, Um, as providers of blind folks. So I'm, uh, yeah, really excited to have these conversations and see where we go today, Holly.
3: Yeah, and I think, you know, consent is something we've both already mentioned, and I'd really like to start there because I think it's a great starting point. I mean, nothing should happen without consent and we know that things do happen without consent but consent is the point we all want to start from and that real understanding of what consent is so i kind of want to start with a question which i think is quite difficult which is because the public thinks we're helpless as blind people do you think that they believe they know what consent is and is not for blind people
1: well, that's a very interesting question so it's sort of in the question it assumes uh, that sighted folks out there might have a different way of going about consent when it comes to blind folks mm. and in the work that i do i hope that is not the case i hope that we use this consent framework with everyone and with with blind folks sure we may not know how to how they need help or even identify if they need help but that's so easy with, with consent as a framework, with simply asking, do you need help? Um, and also th- following that up with how might that look, um, or what might that look like? So I really hope that people are not going through the world different um, standards, but we know they are. <laughs> so, yeah. um, Yeah.
3: Yeah, I think it's really, really difficult. I mean, from my own experiences, I would say people don't value my right to consent in quite the same way as they do other people's. You know, I think that it would be considered extremely objectionable for a man to grab a woman in a train station, for example, in broad daylight, you know, people would say that's not okay. Yet if if someone grabs me, it's, oh, well, he was just trying to help you. And I think, um, I think, you know, it, it, you're absolutely right. It should be viewed as the same. We should have the same right to consent. And we do have the same right. Fundamentally, we do. I think, unfortunately, that right isn't always respected because people view us as, as helpless. You know, and, and I think
1: you just touched on one of the most important myths that I'm sort of trying to bust. And that is they were just trying to be nice. And there are many well meaning people out there that are just trying to be nice that do harm that commit consent violations and so somebody grabbing me while i'm going to cross the street may mean to be nice mm-hmm. but they are causing harm and so that's where i want to have the conversation is 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 what do we do then and again too often i hear blind people being told to be nice or to educate yeah. and that is one way to be out in the world certainly There are many times when I'm nice and I educate. And then there are other times in in consent culture where the entire spectrum of response is okay, so long as you are empowered to give that response. And so if we tell people to be nice, we're taking away so much of their agency to be mad or to be angry or to say that hurt or to say, get your hands off of me when we just reduce the conversation down to being nice um yeah
3: no I completely agree with that and I think ultimately you know certainly how I view it is I I just have different levels of energy on different days you know some days I maybe had a really good day and I I can you know a, a guy this morning um an uber driver actually was trying to help me and he pulled me along by my cane you know and normally I'd just be like oh get off me but we had already I'd already really established that there was a language barrier he was trying to help me all he was doing was assisting me to the door of the train station I was like okay this isn't gonna happen forever you know and I I could deal with it on another day I might be like no please stop and I think it, you're right it should be recognized that all those responses are okay it just you know it, we have the right to to make a response and that actually leads into kind of another related question i have which is do you think because many blind people don't get a lot of sexual attention from sighted people that when we do sometimes we accept attention which is harmful or which perhaps we don't want because we almost feel like well it's the only attention i'm ever going to get so i should almost feel grateful you know for, for that attention even if it's harmful and do you think that happens
1: so so i can't specifically talk to the blind community i do i do think it happens and mm. i will share a survey that came out of um it, it was either illinois university or northern illinois university i get the two confused because they're both doing um work around consent and sex education but one of those universities, all of their disabled students. And one of the alarming findings, I actually reached out to the researcher, one of the alarming findings was that a number of people would not stop an experience that they perceived as sexual misconduct. And um, it, it alarmed me how many people would not stop this misconduct. And so I reached out to the investigator and the investigator very much said that this is where a conversation of scarcity comes in. Many of the students didn't know if they would have access to another um, situation. They didn't know if they might be able to be have intimacy again. And what they don't realize is they're not experiencing intimacy. They are experiencing sexual misconduct and they're not fully consenting in. And so, um, again, in the... Uh, the research that Rain has just put out. We have it's like 50% of the blind people who were surveyed could not identify if what was happening was actually misconduct. And so they weren't reporting it. Um, so we really need to have a conversation in our community about what misconduct is, um, about saying no. And even in those situations where it might be a vague A vague yes or they're not entirely sure, that is a no. (laughs) That is a no and somebody who might be a vague yes, it's much more important to maybe ask them out on a second date or see if you can see them again and again try try and engage in intimacy or or they say no and they don't want to see you again. But pushing forward um, in an ambiguous situation, is uh, it it's just spells a uh, consent violation. It's a disaster waiting to happen. So um, I feel like I've meandered a little bit from your initial question, but certainly we need to have a conversation in the blind community about what misconduct is, about reporting it, about consent and all of its aspects.
3: Um, I think that's really important. And I'm happy right. to go
1: into those different aspects of consent if you want to, because I kind of feel like we dived right in. Um, but I can certainly break that up if you'd like.
3: Yeah, so I have a question which kind of leads into that actually, or which can lead into that, which is, um, do you think if if a blind person has kinks, that is often perceived as them giving consent automatically? Because it's like, oh, well, they have kinks, they must just consent to everything. And I think this could be a nice way as well to to move into what consent is and is not.
1: Yeah. So I I really appreciate that conversation. I identify as a kinky person. I do education in our community around kink and consent. Um, and it is so important in consent culture that we recognize the importance that consent plays in all aspects of sexuality. And so in kink culture, consent is the foundation in, in healthy kink culture, consent is the foundation for, for all types of play, all types of relationships, all of the agreements that you might be going into. And so that consent looks like you it is freely given. So in um, I'm using the, the Fry's model to talk about consent here, which is um, Planned Parenthood's model. The F stands for freely given, that um, we are giving our permission um, without without pressure, without manipulation. There's no force taking place. We're not intoxicated and a no is completely okay. So in consent um, and especially in in, um, activities that we may not understand, consent is the thing that makes it okay. That is freely given. Um, the R in the consent model is that um, it is reversible. Consent is, is reversible at any time. When I first started doing this work, a young blind woman came up to me, and she's after a class when I explained that consent was reversible, and she said, "You mean I could stop the activity even though I was the one who initiated it?" And and my heart just sunk because it doesn't matter if we initiated it. It doesn't matter if this is um, something we really want. If we are uncomfortable, if we change our minds, if we want to opt out, that is okay at any time. Um, and even if it's something we've done before. And so um that leads to that it is informed. We are the the I part of the FRIES model. We are informed, we are being honest about what we um are asking for or consenting for. And this is one of the things, especially in in That is misunderstood about kink or BDSM is that people think that it is, um, that there is a, maybe that it's violent or that it's abusive. But in fact, people who are engaging in this play in a healthy way are having a lot of informed conversations, especially for a disabled person but all people, you're having conversations about how your body works, what feels good, what doesn't, what your limits are. You're having conversations about sexually transmitted infections. Maybe you have other partners. Maybe um, you're you're giving all of the information that needs to go into an interaction. Um, Once you've done all of that, it's enthusiastic or it's also explicit. And so if somebody really isn't into it, like I was saying a little bit earlier, then they're not consenting. If they're not, um, um, if they're not clear about what they're opting into, um, it's not a full consent. And so people need to be enthusiastic or explicit about what is happening. And then finally, the S in the FRIES model is that it's specific. Um, And so saying yes to one thing doesn't mean you're saying yes to another thing. And I think this is, again, another really important part to tie in the conversation around kink and and even what I have heard around sexual violence. There is a lot of slut shaming of people whose sexuality is different than than mainstream vanilla sort of norm, if you will. And it's because people don't understand it, but that doesn't make it wrong and it doesn't make it bad. And um, like I said, I am a mom of a 13-year-old. And there's many times that something may come up that he just doesn't understand. And I simply say to him, remember, consent is the thing that can help what you don't, don't understand be okay between two people. And so he doesn't have to understand different relationships or what's going on out in the world. And that is okay, just so long as consent is a thing that are binding those relationships together. So that was a lot <laughs> um, to sort of answer your question, but but certainly folks who are kinky are slut shamed and people may say if they experience sexual violence, um, well, that should have been expected, or you know, something along those lines. And and that is that is harmful. That is that is the opposite of consent culture and what we want in our communities. So um, I hope I answered your question.
3: (laughs) You did. That was a really great answer. Thank you so much. And I think you raised so many important points. And one thing that's really stood out to me throughout all of this conversation is education and a lack of education. And do you think that consumer organizations like the ACB and NFB have avoided talking about sex and sexuality and sexual violence because sex is still seen as a taboo subject?
1: Yeah, so um, I think that I think that the entire world (laughs) has these conversations. I think that when we, when it comes to disability advocacy organizations, um, we are talking a double taboo. We are talking disability, which is a taboo in and of itself. Just simply being a disabled person out in the world seems to be, um, you know, (laughs) have its own people have their opinions. And then sexuality is taboo. And so you combine those two things together. And and, um, certainly there's lots of opinions um, about a disabled person's bodily autonomy. Do they have the right to make decisions about who they will be with and whether they have family and all of that. And So certainly the agencies that serve us all have a really important role in this conversation. What I have found um, and even we are experiencing right now, um, and it is important part of the conversation, is that most of these organizations will only address this topic in terms of sexual violence. And so that is really important. And when I came on to doing this work, I really wanted to take the position of far more of a pleasure advocate. And how do we make sex education accessible? How do we make spaces for adults to have conversations about sexuality and um how do we talk about pleasure? <laughs> and um because I just saw so many agencies only talking about sexual violence. But in fact I found personally I found a, a middle ground and that is consent. And consent will not stop perpetrators who are intent on doing harm. It is not going to be the thing that stops them. But building a culture of consent and having language around consent certainly will help us address our sexual violence, um, the harms that are caused in our community. And I would also like to see us having conversations about consent and pleasure and consent and the relationships we do want to have. Um, And it kind of piggybacks into talking to parents as well as agencies. And that is, we're so often focused on what we don't want for our blind, for blind folks. We don't want them to experience sexual assault. We don't want them to get an STI or sexually transmitted infection. We don't want them to have an unwanted pregnancy or unintended pregnancy. Um, There's so many things we don't want. And so as agencies or parents, We just make sure they get that information. But but what what I'm asking is to focus on what we do want. We do want people out there to be in relationships and to be able to have conversations navigating pleasure, being able to talk about consent, what feels good for their body, what does not feel good for their body, Um, being able to experience families and pregnancies and relationships and all of those things and to be able to do so in an accessible way. Um, those are all really important conversations that I think these agencies should also be having. So um, again, I'm not entirely sure that I answered your initial conversation because I think the whole <laughs> world um, really needs to catch up. But um. Ironically, I think COVID may have helped us get on the consent Mm. bandwagon a little bit sooner because we're navigating social distances, we're navigating hugs, we're navigating COVID bubbles, you know, so we are having a consent conversation, even if it's not based in sexuality quite yet.
3: Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think you've you answered my question really well and I think it's okay you know to to drift from the strict questions because there, there's so much to this that it's not one simple thing you know it can never be one thing. Um, one question I do have which relates to education and both to education in school but also I would say just to the wider world so the LGBTQ community has had some small success in getting sex education on curriculums in schools in some states in the US and I think I really need to stress some states because certainly not all are open to this but also I would say um, there's much greater awareness of things like gender identity and sexuality than there was even 10 years ago. I mean I think of when well I actually I finished high school nine years ago now which is weird to say but um, even you know when I was when I was in high school I knew that There were gay people. I knew that there were lesbians. I had a vague idea that there were transgender people. I didn't really know anything beyond, you know, that, to be Mm -hmm. honest. I mean, I was like, oh, okay, you know lesbian, gay people, bisexuals, then some people are trans, but I didn't know any of the other identities that are so, so normalized now and that we talk about and that are very much present in online culture. What do you think we as a disabled community can learn from the LGBTQ community, acknowledging also that there's this significant overlap of LGBTQ disabled people?
1: Yeah, it's interesting because that, that, that overlap, I think, is where so many of these conversations start. Um, when I was doing this work at a at an agency in downtown San Francisco, so much of the advocacy work would involve like working with Pride um, to make Pride more accessible, to make sure that disabled people can can march in Pride, to make sure that the events and and staging areas have some a space cornered off for people with disabilities that's accessible, that's easy to get to, um, just all kinds of things that are really important when we go into queer spaces to make sure that they're accessible for disabled folks. And then vice versa, we're doing a lot of advocacy within the disabled spaces, within the blind spaces, um, within the organization, exactly like you're saying, to to bring in conversations of intersectionality and and, um, LGBTQ issues and start to have cross movement solidarity. And so so much of that I think is is where those conversations start. Um and then but but to answer your your broader question I think um it um let me see <laughs> I, I do a whole conver- I do a whole lecture for teachers of the blind and visually impaired about cultural humility and that is like going through through life as critical, lifelong self-reflection. And really, again, I feel like I'm straying, but I think the thing that helps with this cross-movement solidarity for me is consent, is I may not know how to, to talk to somebody who is transgender. However, I do have the consent language. And so if I can respectfully ask them, you know, what their pronouns are or ask them if, um, you know, people ask us about our blindness all the time. Um, Is it hereditary? Were you born like that? Any number of things. And unless they have actually asked if they can ask me those questions, they're sort of violating my consent. And so again, I may not know how to interact with this person with another disability or this person whose gender is different than mine, but I know I have consent as a tool. So if I ask them first if it's okay, um, then I'm much more likely to have a, have a conversation where I can, can navigate our needs better. And so um, I think I'll just give you an example. Um, when I first started doing this work in cross-disability spaces. There was a man um, who had cerebral palsy, and uh, did not have, um, uh, his his hands were sort of very spastic, and I wanted to ask him out to lunch, but I didn't know how, and so for about six months, I simply didn't, I didn't ask him, because I didn't know how this was going to work. I didn't know how he ate his food. I, I just didn't know, and finally, one day, he asked me out, he asked me out for lunch, and I, admitted and was vulnerable and I said I am so happy because I've wanted this for a while I just didn't know how it was going to look and and he sort of laughed and giggled with me and he said well I wish you wouldn't wait six months it really is just a consent conversation (laughs) and he said we're gonna go out to pizza and it will get all over my my face but he said I'm good friends with you now and I'm okay with that And I laughed and said, well, I'm blind, so I'm not going to see much of that. And we had a great lunch. And so later, when met with a similar situation, I didn't wait six months to ask the person out. I waited. It was at the end of a six-hour meeting and was able to say, hey you seem like a really interesting person. I'm not sure how this would look, but would you like to go out and have a meal? And so we were able to navigate their needs around disability with my blindness so that we could both enjoy this meal together. And um, consent was how I did that. And so I don't, I don't know if it's with the, the LGBT community or other people with disabilities. I think when in doubt, just ask.
3: Yeah, I I really like that, and I I really like that you say it comes back to consent, and I think it absolutely does, and I think we often think of consent as in saying yes or no to sex, and that's a small part of consent, and that's a really critical part of consent, but Mm -hmm. consent, it goes into every aspect of life, it's like, you know, consent is, oh, would you like a hug? Mm-hmm. you know versus oh I'm going to give you a hug consent is you know oh would you like me to help you with your shopping rather than just grabbing someone shopping you know it doesn't have to be about sex I mean it obviously should be absolutely consent and sex should go together but consent should also apply in all these other areas of our lives and even say oh, do you mind if I ask you a couple of questions about your access needs I mean I do that now with my friends all the time because I I've entered this mm-hmm. group where um I'm really the only blind person in the group and everyone else has varying different disabilities or some people have no disabilities and I said to to one person at the weekend actually I was like do you mind if I ask are you actually disabled because I couldn't work out if he was and he was like oh no I'm not and then I you know teased him about being the token minority because he was the only non-disabled person in our group that day Mm. but it was it was funny and I think you know when I, we're really open. And when we say, you know, do you mind if I ask you this? And and if that person says, actually, yeah, I'm, I don't really have the energy to answer this today, then we just go, okay, that's fine. You mm-hmm. know, and I think it's about being um, kind and, and understanding that while we don't always want to answer questions, they might not either, but being asked usually means, I uh, usually means in my case, I'm going to be more open to it. So I think, I think that's really yeah. true. And I think this intersection of um, like queer spaces and disabled spaces is really important because, The LGBT community is already so much more open to things like kink and um, to just understanding of sexuality fundamentally because of who the community is. And I think actually there's there's some great work to be done and there is being done, you know, and I really want to stress that is already being done, but can always, you know, there can always be more of it. Because sometimes I think maybe disability spaces are a little bit closed off. So if we start somewhere that's already open to sexuality, hopefully we can bring disability into that. Um, it's kind of how I hope for it. Yeah. So and and certainly one of the
1: things that I found was it, it takes so many different things to bring somebody to disability or to bring somebody to sexuality. And so I'll give. Um, an example, we, we um, did an outing to Folsom Street Fair, which is the world's largest kink festival in San Francisco. And we partnered up with sighted folks who would do human guide for the fair. And so blind people were able to go experience on their own, all of the different vendors, what was available, everything else. As you can imagine, this was an incredibly controversial workshop to do in the blind community. But in doing that, it was amazing the different needs that were met. One person had really been into fashion design before they lost their vision. And they were able to learn all about the different kink costuming and everything. And so in their world, that was far more exciting to them any of the sexual activity that was going on or taking place. We had another young person who discovered that at this festival they were able to get um, HIV and STI testing. This was the first time this person had access to H- HIV um, testing and that is what they did. And so it it, it is just like people saw this as this, this hedonistic festival and yet it fulfilled needs in blind people that we couldn't even have have, have sort of seen or uh, have known that that, that was needed. Um, and then vice versa, because we were doing work in kink, blind people who did not come typically to the blindness agencies um, started to see that, oh, there's a place there for me. Oh, let me go and see what these blind people are doing because I, I can see myself in them. And again, the same fair, but it was a year later, um, we had a blind person go and he met up with a number of other people. He used his cane for the first time in community. And he said it was amazing because he was able to hold his head up and see what was going around the fair. And here he was blind and kinky and for the first time, really, around community. And so We never know what it's going to be that brings somebody into the blind community or helps somebody expand out into the world a little bit more freely. Um, But again, with consent culture and keeping a little bit of an open mind, um, we can understand that those people are adults that are consenting into that activity or consenting into that experience and let them be free in the world to do
3: that. So. I really love that. And I love all the adventures you've had, like (laughs) taking groups of blind people to do this like crazy cool stuff. It makes me so happy. I mean, and I think back to kind of my first experience, even handling a sex toy, you know, I must have been, let me think how old I was. I must have been 23 before I even felt a vibrator. And I sort of vaguely knew what one must look like. I'd already lost my virginity in quite a bit before then. Um, But I'd never actually seen sex toys. And my friends in college took me to a sex shop to go and feel a bunch of vibrators. And I I think it's, you know, this thing that we we get sometimes get a bit embarrassed about. There's absolutely no need. I mean, why are we embarrassed about having a sexuality? Any of us, and I, th- I think you know, you did say this is a this is a societal issue, and I completely agree. It's not just blind people who are embarrassed about this. You know, I know lots and lots of non-disabled people who, who feel really uncomfortable. But I mean, there's nothing wrong with wanting sex. There's nothing wrong with not wanting sex as well. You know, this this whole spectrum of sexuality is just who we are, and I think I, I love that these conversations are starting to open up. Um, and I, I do have a couple more questions as well kind of more on on the theme of dating if that's okay mm-hmm. yeah so i i was kind of wondering you know do you think that a lot of people can't really wrap their heads around this idea that disabled people will be in relationships with non-disabled people whether that's a blind person with a sighted person or or even you know a blind person in a relationship with someone with a different disability this kind of idea of either kind of a cross disability relationship or a disabled person with a non-disabled person do you think that is still seen as quite surprising or do you think that's normalized in our society? So again I think it totally depends on on
1: I think I, I think that that the answer to that is broad. Like there are some people who are totally, it's normalized, and it's fine. And there are other people who are like, this is still taboo or very much from a caretaker perspective. And so what I actually really like to think about this as is from from a power power and privilege perspective, power di- dynamics. And those power dynamics can take place in relationships from age religion, ability, social position, money, race, like there's so many ways that we can have power imbalances. And so when 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 I date um other folks and am talking to other disabled folks about dating um non-disabled folks, a lot of the conversation we're having is about power, even if that's not the word that we're sort of like using. And so um I will share in in my current relationship, we navigate advocacy. We navigate how um, um, I, I was on an airplane recently and before we got on the airplane I had a conversation with my partner about them wanting to take my straight cane. I knew it was likely going to happen. I knew how much I was going to advocate for it and then we made an agreement when I was going to turn to my partner and have my partner step in and take it from there, and to what level of escalation I was comfortable with him doing so. All of those conversations really need to happen because if they don't happen, and my partner sees that I'm struggling and he just escalates and jumps in, and he's totally taken all of my power away, he's taken my agency away to advocate in a way that feels good for me or is healthy for me. And so to me, Whether somebody is disabled or not, whether somebody has all of the money in a relationship or not, those conversations come back to consent and acknowledgement of that power and how you're going to navigate it. So yes, the outside world has lots and lots of opinions about this, Um, but my partner, certainly there are many ways that I have... A lot more power in the relationship by being blind by going through the world the way I do and then have to help share some of that with with them have to help them unpack some of their journey through that through that lens too so yeah it's um again I feel like I strayed but I would rather the world not see us for like um or assume a caretaker relationship or assume any of that mm. but far or more have healthy conversations around how do we navigate this in a healthy way?
3: Yeah I completely agree with that and I think communication is so very important and, and you've raised a really good point that regardless of disability communication and relationships and actually I see so many relationships where I think if you just sat down and had a conversation with each other this would not be happening right now. I mean we can all think of you know examples in literature or examples from people we know you know friends of ours where they're having a big fight and you just think well, you guys should have just had a conversation and this would not not be the issue you know i think but it it does happen with the big things like with with power power. and you know and i i definitely agree and i think friendships too i'm going to take this a step away from um kind of sexual and intimate relationships into friendships there's times when I desperately want my friends to step in and advocate for me when I'm exhausted or when I need someone to stand beside me and they may not even have to speak they they may just need to stand beside me and that in itself Mm -hmm. is a powerful statement but there are also times when I need them to back off and let me uh, particularly I think perhaps because I'm a woman and some people as well particularly if I'm with male friends will defer to them and actually I need my male friend Mm -hmm. to step back and, and let me be the one you know oh what does she want well talk to me you know not my friend mm-hmm. but but yeah I mean I think communication if, if you can sometimes you can't see it see it before it happens you know preempt it and have this conversation but I think if you can do it and actually find people who who will be willing to have those conversations with you because someone who's worth a relationship with whether that's sexual or friendship they they will understand why this conversation is is so important. Yeah, and and I
1: think, you know, so much we can't see things in, ad, in advance coming. Like, I forget the fact that we're blind, but just we don't have a crystal ball either. So we can't unpack all of these situations ahead of time. But even again, checking in in that moment. So, you know, when I had my service dog and I'd be at a, a, a restaurant that didn't want to seat me, you know, I might be doing my advocacy thing. What would be really helpful is if a friend said, I'm here for you, I'll step in whenever you, I I assume you'll ask when you want me to step in, or I just want you to know I'm here, or whatever the case might be, to let me know that they are there, that they are a support offering, but waiting to be asked. Um, and that is, that is something I really have learned about, um, Uh, um, microaggressions and committing them myself is is it's I'm far less likely to do harm if I ask and wait for a response Um, when I first started doing this consent culture and even ask permission before a hug I would ask for a hug with my arms open and it's now it's sort of like would you like a hug my arms are down by my side I'm giving person the opportunity to opt in and out And I'm really amazed at how many of my friends, especially blind friends, want to hug when they want to hug. They may not want it the minute they walk in the door because they've just experienced a world of consent violations and they want to calm down, or they may want it the second they walk in the door. Everybody is so different, but making sure we ask um, is really important.
3: No, that, that, yeah. that's so true. And I, you know, it's always, always back to consent. And, and this is funny because it reminded me the other day, Um, I almost went to hug someone. And it was someone who it, it wouldn't have been appropriate to hug them just, just in general. But it was it was funny because I was like, you know, when you just want to give someone a hug and it's like, no, I have to ask this person. And we all do it, even though we know better. Like we absolutely are all all guilty of that, I think. And it's, it's about just trying to check ourselves and be aware of it and not think, oh, I'm a terrible person, I didn't ask, but be like, and sometimes it's just saying, I'm sorry I didn't ask you beforehand. And they might be like, oh, that's totally okay. But I think if someone acknowledges that they maybe overstepped a boundary, I really appreciate that acknowledgement. And I understand they didn't intend to cause harm, but that that acknowledgement is, it means a lot, I think.
1: Yeah, I think the second, like that that conversation of impact and intent The, hmm. the you may not have intended that, but the impact was, um, Um, and so getting ahead of it, acknowledging it, I think is, is really important. Um, being able to clean up our mistakes is a huge part of, of relationship and setting up boundaries and, you know, how you will do things better or different in the future. So, yeah.
3: Oh, that's totally true. And, and you know, having the courage sometimes to say, I'm sorry, because it's hard. Saying sorry is hard or it can be hard. It can be embarrassing, you know, because you, you feel guilty and you almost think, oh, if I don't say sorry, like I don't have to face my guilt, but we all need to have the courage to, to face and, and to not view, not to view it as like, the end of the world. It actually, if we if we normalize saying sorry, it gets easier, and it doesn't make it any less meaningful. It, it means that we're accepting that that making mistakes is a natural part of life. But actually, so is owning up to our mistakes. I think is mm-hmm. in, in all areas of life. And um, so I was actually going to give twenty minutes for questions, but there are so many people here. I was going to see. Would you be okay with giving thirty minutes instead? um Just because I don't want to take all the time with my questions to you and i think if we can take some audience questions and then if we run out of questions i can come back to a few more at the end but i think with, with the amount of people we have 30 minutes may actually work really well i'm
1: i'm fine with that i hope you will answer them too i love listening to oh, I, <laughs> I,
3: I will i will if someone wants to ask me a question i'll i'll answer them too yes <laughs> So language. I think um, I think
2: the
4: hands are going Diane? On. okay yes
3: all right uh
2: first one is uh we have Diana Oliveira.
4: Oh thank you so much for taking my call and congratulations, you were able to say my name right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it's Oliveira, yes, it's Brazilian, so it would be a perfect pronunciation. Thank you. Well, I have a couple of comments. Um first of all. Um, I appreciate this discussion, the way it's being handled. I am a member of another organization that really takes it in a very harsh way, which I really don't like. Um, I am a female. I am dating. My boyfriend is uh, fully sighted. And uh, I have been married before with two fully sighted men. So I never had necessarily a problem of um, keeping a relationship with a sighted person. I'm a partial, uh, but again, um, acknowledgements and communications are very important. Um, so I, I think that one thing that, um, uh, one little event that happened to me years ago, and I think it is important to relate it here. Um, I was back in Brazil for a little while on business and family business, and uh, I was crossing the street. And I had my cane with me, which I got in the habit to using no matter where I was in the world, <laughs> something that I learned not to be embarrassed about. So I had my cane with me, and uh, I was waiting for the light to turn green for me, right? Obviously, I was able to see the light, but I was um, just waiting. Um, And there was a man that came by the corner or the the crossroad was, and he grabbed my arm and uh, totally stranger. Right. So I I looked at him and um, he he said, well, he says he grabbed my arm and he said, I will help you to cross the street. I looked at him, faced him and said, excuse me, can you please release my arm? If I need your help, I will ask. So I think that because we are members of organizations that um, teach us to be assertive uh, and to speak up, I think that everybody has got this has to be reinforced for anybody because um, we cannot blow things out of proportion. And consent is definitely something that has to be present in any um um, so sexual approach or uh, this kind of a physical approach, I should say. But I just spoke up, and it was not mm-hmm. the first time. It happened a couple of times in different yeah. locations in the world. So, uh, and the guy immediately released my immediately, immediately released my arm. I had another um, situation with a blind man right? Um, it, we were talking, it was a happy hour and we were sitting over wine and stuff like that, talking about the convention and stuff like that. And uh, he, he started touching me. At that time, because I was new to the whole community, um, I was not very sure if blind men used to do that. <laughs> um, so, you know, he touched my hand, he touched my arm and says, well, maybe he's feeling me. I'll see where I am, see how do I look, you know? When he started going to my hair and my face and my hand, my head, and I said, I looked at him and said, excuse me, all blind men do that when they first meet someone. Are you trying to find out how tall I am, how fat I am, how I am? Is that it? He stopped immediately. And this is a guy that was a lawyer, right? So I'm I'm not talking about a stupid guy. So I think speaking up is very important. That's what I, the two points I wanted to make. And thank you so much for your presentation, it was awesome.
3: Yeah, I think um, I, advocacy, I sorry. You.
1: I, I was just, I, I appreciate you you sharing that. One of the um, projects that, or one of the workshops that we do with transitional age use is we, first of all, talk about what microaggressions are and the different experiences of them out in the world. Um, And the youth will do a scenario where they will play out what just happened. So what you just explained, that person on the street grabbing you. And we have them work on a scenario that they feel disempowered by. It sounds like you've had some experience and you have some advocacy in these organizations have helped you. But in order to help people sort of get there, we use consent as this tool. And so we have them do the first scene, which is they're going across the street and they get grabbed or whatever the microaggression might be. And then we have them unpack in community in with their peers, how they might want to respond in a more empowered way, what might leave them feeling more empowered. And we use this consent model and framework. And then the youth enact out another scene with the same microaggression happening and a response that leaves them feeling more empowered. And um, in one of the activities we did, we got feedback um, in real life from the instructor. The student did not want to use their cane before because they were getting a lot of misunderstanding from other students and microaggressions about their cane. You don't look blind. Why do you need that? Um, In the situation that they chose, they chose to use some humor and educate their peers that way. And it actually led to them having a peer group and using their cane more. And so just simply, again, these these advocacy organizations, not simply telling us one way to respond, but giving the whole spectrum of responses and letting people respond in a way that leaves them feel more empowered Mm -hmm. will lead to more empowerment further in life. So great points. And sorry, I cut you off.
3: um, no, that that's totally okay. Um I, I was gonna say, you know, we Um, I I completely agree. And I completely agree that learning how for us, the best way for us as individuals to deal with these situations and, you know, maybe multiple strategies. And I sometimes find having maybe scripts prepared, that I can pull out in advance when I'm in under pressure, I can think, oh, I don't have to come up with something to say on the spot. I've kind of rehearsed and it doesn't always go to plan, you know, but having these can be quite helpful. And I will say, I think we have quite a lot of hands. So I'm going to ask if people can kind of ask a question and then we'll answer their question and then we will move on to someone else. But then if we have time at the end, we'll come back to people who maybe have second questions or longer comments. Just because I want to make sure everyone gets the chance to to kind of ask
4: something. Okay. Next we have Sean Teal. I'll go ahead and unmute.
0: Hi Diane. It's actually Theo. Anyway, um so one of the questions I have is um how do we relate uh body language in uh in this framework and i'll the reason i'm asking is because i had a situation where i was doing something that made my partner uncomfortable and he was leaning away from me and i didn't notice partly because i had was anxious because of some other things but we eventually talked about it and i said i had i had no idea you're going to have to tell me you need to tell me when you're uncomfortable with something because i can't pick up on those body language cues but how do we deal with the fact that sighted people might not understand that we don't understand body language if you because i've been totally blind all my life <laughs> and this is a, a an issue that has happened multiple times where you know you just don't you don't know, and sighted people don't understand that you don't know. How do you, how do you, what, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, this is, um, I, I appreciate uh, it, it really is important for us to talk about body language and consent as blind folks. So thank you for this. Um, so much of what we are asking the entire, what we educators sex educators especially um, are asking of folks is to move to a more explicit consent model. And that is that would include a lot more verbal checking in. That's a lot more of those. um, um, So a lot of people, these a lot, not all, many of these nonverbal cues also have, there are other uh, senses attached into them. And so somebody's body shifting away from you or moving away from you, their language starting to tense up, um, starting to get much more rapid or excited, um, changes in those kinds of things. Whenever somebody like, yes, you can't see those things, but your body is starting to sense they're talking really fast. Um, I just want to check in. Are you okay? Is everything okay right now? Um, or one of the other things that will often I notice is um the voice. It are they looking down? Are they looking away? I can definitely tell when when somebody is actively engaging with me versus when somebody is in a more retreat kind of mode. And so in all of those ways i am actually even letting the sighted world know and i i don't know that there's research on this if there is i would love for people to point me in this direction but i actually have a theory that sighted people use a lot more nonverbal consent what they then end up doing is using their vision to check what they just what they just saw or heard and what we need to do is actually use our voice to check what we just heard or felt. And so they might feel that somebody is retreating and then they look up and see, oh, their whole body's moved. Their first sense came from, from sound or from something else. And so really just encouraging us to just Um, Have much more of that verbal explicit consent, and to realize that there's so much more that is going on in all of this than just me. I think that that's a disservice Mm -hmm. the sighted community does, and we do when we just chalk it all up to what we can see. One more, Polly. I I would love to hear your thoughts, please, on that.
0: One more point I want to make is that when you talked about why don't you just have a conversation, sometimes anxiety can be such that having that conversation, even though it's a, a, a needed conversation can be mm. very difficult and I think we yeah. need to also recognize that that the reasons that conversation might not be happening is that because I have a lot of anxiety around being emotionally vulnerable because of mm. a past emotional abusive relationship so just mm. keep that in mind as your work as people are working to understand this that that can have a bit a fair bit to deal with or to do with it.
3: Yeah. And I I think Mm -hmm. something I've done, you know, and think that I've found effective is having a conversation about maybe some um, either words or some signals when I'm not in that situation. You know, when, when we're just hanging out and things are like relaxed, I might talk to my partner and say, hey, you know, can we work out some kind of signal, whether that's me doing something that they can see or whether that's maybe them like, Putting their hand on my shoulder or something and you know a non-verbal but a pre-agreed communication method which says hey i just need to take a second you know and it can be can we just you know break for a second just so we can all gather ourselves and then maybe then anxiety will be less to open up that conversation and i think it it is really hard because anxiety definitely um can complicate this and does complicate this and i think that's a very real thing so I've I've found for me personally and I, I don't know that this will work for everyone is but trying to have these conversations about maybe some techniques and methods when I'm not actually in that situation because um it it then kind of helps me pre-plan and and saying hey I might check in with you a lot that doesn't mean I'm being weird about this or that I'm being kind of possessive I'm just wanting to check because I can't see you and again that, that depends on on you and them and how you feel at the time so I think um it's difficult though and these things aren't always easy to navigate um so do we have awesome. another yeah, hand? Okay. yeah. you want to just one yeah. i feel like i didn't add this with the
1: with somebody who has experienced trauma in the past especially in more long term relationships and intimacy this is where being explicit about those things that cause you anxiety or or um um, being more explicit in the consent conversation, like you just said, um, having anxiety can affect your capacity for consent. That can affect your capacity to both give it and also to receive it. And so, when you get to that point of those conversations, I, I definitely talking to your to your partners about that um, is really important. So, um, thank you for bringing that up. I just wanted to add that.
2: Okay. uh, Next is Nikki Colby. Go ahead. Hi.
5: So um, I have a a challenge. I um, I'm a woman, and I belong to at one point a group for people women with chronic illness, and I started to think about becoming more sensual with my with myself. and what they were talking about because of course chronic illness can really affect that was they were like and if you don't know where to start there are a lot of great youtube videos well that doesn't help me and it was not something that my mom ever talked about with me how to be how to create pleasure for yourself um so how do you learn that and i am not in a place where i can um have a have a partner at this time so you know working with working with a partner um I and I'm not passing on judgment for anyone who doesn't believe this way by any stretch but my faith believes in no you know sex with a partner before marriage (laughs) so it's not like I can work with a partner to learn anything about it how can I learn how to give myself pleasure in that way. Um, what do you do? How? I don't, I don't even understand it. <laughs> um, I don't know if that question is making any sense or not, but, you know,
1: so yeah. Is it just wanting to, to explore more um, self-pleasure in your body? and yes. just To have more permission to do that. Awesome. I, I, I think for, everybody <laughs> um, on this call. Um, that journey is individual and and as unique as each one of us are. Religion certainly plays a role in all of that. Um, um, and I have the same conversation with um, a very religious family member of mine that I just shared earlier on this call. They they're not thrilled with the work that I do. But again, I would like them focusing on what they want for their family members, as opposed to all of the fear. And so in those ways, I think just the exploration, the conversations, all of that helps. Um, But for me, I, so much of this journey into pleasure was permission. And and I did not get that permission really from my family. I did not get that permission from society. I did not get that permission until I started studying sex-positive communities. And that studying can look like there's there's lots of books out there. It can, like you said, the YouTube videos. Um, there's amazing content out on podcasts right now. I personally, part of my um, my. I went in sexuality and I realized not everybody can do that. It didn't actually teach me the question you are asking. What I had to do for myself was, I I would take classes in community. Fortunately, so many of those classes are available online now. There there are classes, you can Google, you know, self-pleasure, masturbation classes. Um, and you can get a Zoom link, and yes, there's there are some varied costs associated, but in each one of those things that I would go to, there'd be a panel like this, or there would be somebody talking, and each step there'd be a little more permission undoing the negative socialization, that this was taboo, or this was bad, or my body wasn't to be explored in that way and so as i undid socialization i learned more and so i really encourage all of the different avenues there's so much um out there um and we are working on the accessible piece it is not all accessible yet but we are working on that
5: right so i, I that, guess i hope
3: that's helpful. what um, what i uh, we still have several hands
1: incidentally
5: what i what i what i was I guess, trying to say is it's not so much about permission for creating pleasure for myself. It's more, how do I learn how to do it? And so you're suggesting like podcasts and things like that.
1: Yeah. And so, um, um, definitely. So I am happy to connect a little bit more offline and provide some different resources too. You can all find me on the Blindness and Sexuality Facebook page. And there's also a Facebook page, Blind Positive Sex Ed, that is, that is, um, and I can I can sort of point you in the direction of some resources and even um, community that have some of these conversations. Um, um, Holly, definitely help me if you have ideas here, but I talking in community and exploring, and for me, so much of that, um, I didn't have a healthy framework to explore, <laughs> and so, yeah.
3: um, so I'll just say something quickly because I, I, I do think we have a lot of other hands. So, one thing perhaps to look into is podcasts, so you can search, um, just in a podcast app, you know. Just use different terms that feel right for you and search for that and see because there's lots of podcasts around sex and sexuality and self pleasure and all these different and really great informational podcasts, actually. That because they're audio, you they're not, you know, based on you being able to see a video. And I think, I think podcasts are a really good resource.
1: And if there's a sex store near you, a good vibrations, a pleasure palace, um, all kinds of names, folks that work in those stores are often really fairly sex positive and can give you lots of good information and advice. And they often have a wall of things that you can experiment with and play with and feel and see what it might be like. So definitely take advantage of that free education you could get at places like that as well. Okay, you have 11 minutes left and seven hands raised. Uh,
2: So uh, just because we are a limited amount of time um, let's go to uh, promotions so I can promote ACB students and Laura and Holly can promote their uh, social media and stuff. And then if we have time, we'll do one more question and then I'll give out the uh, education, the CEU code for the closing. So I'll start. So ACB students has a Facebook page and a Twitter page, and that is at ACB students. And um, if Holly and Laura want to promote their social medias and stuff?
1: Yeah, uh, blindness and sexuality, that's actually blindness ampersand sexuality is where I post a lot of just different articles and the work that I do, um, information about blindness and sexuality. The the community-based group that we are um, running, you can find us at Blind Positive Sex Ed on Facebook. We are also at Clubhouse, at the Blind Positive Sex Ed Clubhouse Club, um, where we have informal conversations in community about sexual health, about consent. Um, The person on here who just asked the question about pleasure, this is a great kind of conversation for us to take on over to Clubhouse and ask folks in community, how did you explore self-pleasure as a blind person? And so certainly find us on Clubhouse and join us for those conversations um, over there. And also I can be reached at laura at lauramiller.com. And my last name is spelled M-I-L-L-A-R. So
3: thank you. Great. Um, And I'll just quickly go through my social, if that's okay. mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh you can find me on Twitter at catch these words and you can also find my website, catchthesewords.com. So those two are the best ways of finding me.
2: Um Laura, I do have a question for you. If people are interested in in joining the clubhouse, is there a way that they can get a hold of you to like find out when uh that will be open or when that will be on or anything?
1: Um yeah, so you can join you can blind positive sex ed club on clubhouse and it will notify folks of um we are th- i believe it's the first and third mondays and the second and fourth tuesdays um it's been a little quiet because of convention weeks but we will be back up and running um soon so
2: awesome thank you um so it looks like we do have time for at least one more question and then i could give out the ceu code okay uh, next have- person is
4: Daniel. I have a a question. Um, What, uh, what do you people think is the most accessible uh, online dating site for totally blind people?
3: I have a suggestion. Um, So I would say OkCupid is reasonably accessible. Certainly the website is I don't know if there's an app. To be honest, I have no idea if there's an app. But um, the website is reasonably accessible. I know some blind people have used Tinder. That isn't hugely accessible. You kind of have to just say yes to all of them and then filter on conversation um which isn't how sighted people use tinder you know but um okay Cupid is or at least it was reasonably accessible from my perspective i don't know if laura has any other suggestions um, the only uh, the only one that I would add to that for
1: kink minded folks is uh, FetLife is fairly accessible, and they actually have a blind uh, accessibility person on staff, which makes me happy.
2: Okay, maybe one more question.
1: Okay. Uh, next one
2: is Amber Steep. About that dating thing, you know, the blind with sighted. Is that a surprise? I've actually had the opposite. I've had where I wanted to date a blind guy and my grandma said, y'all can't take care of yourselves or something to that effect. You need someone to take care of you. I'm like, I do not. And I like him.
3: Yeah. I've I've definitely heard some stuff like that from family before, you know, and I think different families come with different prejudices. You know, some will say, Oh, well, you need someone to take care of you. Some will say, Oh, well, you know, go for a blind person because they'll probably date you. Um, Unfortunately, it it kind of works both ways with prejudice um i I think if we're quick we can probably do one more question so i actually i I
1: do want to share one thing real quick with that my journey started with i didn't want to date blind people either i didn't think that i'd have access to the world in the way that now 18 years later i'd be totally fine dating a blind person and so i think um for each of us that journey is is unique and interesting too but i certainly have come a long way from when I was first diagnosed <laughs> with that question. So, um, last question.
2: Okay, we have a phone number, area code 614 ending in 370.
6: This is Melody Holloway. I was wondering how we can get families to understand that when if an LPCC or a mental health professional tells us we have been in fact sexually abused After over three decades, and they they choose not to come to therapy with me, how can I get my blood family to understand, my true family does, that it did happen that uh, there are people that have it worse than you and don't dwell on your past and go see a friend and read the Bible isn't going to help me and not to try to trigger and increase an environment that's going to cause severe anxiety.
1: Wow, that's a, that that is a lot that it sounds like you are going through. Um, And and finding support after trauma is uh it sounds like you're going through quite a journey of that so um i i'm uh, can you ask your question again i think i was just struck by your resilience in the in the question i actually missed the question itself
6: (laughs) i'm not making a lot of sense lately how could how can i get my family my mom had always told me you had not been there is no way you've been sexually abused. You've had such a good life, and I'm extremely below the poverty line. A lot of aspects of my life have not been. I'm, I'm finding out. And I was between the ages of three and five, and she was the one who had tried to report it was not, and I cannot. And now I had a, a therapist tell me, oh, yes, around five years ago, what happened to you was and the act itself and who it was. Like, you know, it was so unusual. And now my mom will say, and it's kind of, you know, because I am there, their daughter their creation you know you, you couldn't be lesbian you can't be you know all this stuff couldn't have happened to you and I'm told oh yes by professionals and, and now I have a lot of personal friends helping me see what is still going on so I just need and they choose not to come to therapy I've had over 16 years of treatment it's kind of backfiring and it's helping me see what did happen what is still and I can't get out of the situation that's kind of increasing this environment aggravating my situation I'm no longer sexually abused but yeah I don't know how to help my family see and, and get them to look at resources that I provide and get them to get help for them handling me and also the fact that there may be some diagnoses going on that are not yet found.
1: Yeah, that's, um, Holly, I'm definitely going to yeah defer to you just the amount of work you've mm-hmm. done with survivors in this, um, and um, also please, please do reach out offline um, as well.
6: I yeah, I would say for me at all. I okay. have no desire to do so, but I do have email and
3: okay. I can um get my email address circulated as well after this so that you can get hold of it. Cause I, I have some experience, I mean, mostly working within the UK, but a lot of the systems are the same. I think sometimes there is no way to get family into therapy with you. And this is a really hard reality that none of us particularly like because obviously the ultimate goal is to get them into therapy with us. Um I I would also definitely advise seeking out resources, um, so maybe not necessarily crisis centres, because it it doesn't sound like you're in a situation of immediate um, threat of sexual violence right now. Obviously, if you are, definitely go and seek out a crisis centre. But there are centres which will provide um these kinds of resources and that can actually reach out to families with you or bring an advocate with you to speak to your family and I would definitely look for someone who's trained in working with survivors of sexual violence and working with families um so there are family social workers who aren't with the state you know who are with um kind of trauma centers and um sexual violence crisis centers and their role is really to work with families and we also have people over here um for example an independent sexual violence advisor and independent domestic abuse advisors who their their job is to essentially support you um so not necessarily as a counsellor but to support you as an advocate and I I would look for a resource like that in your state and I will get my email address circulated because I have connections in the US even though I'm not over there um so maybe that I'd be able to find someone to link you up with because I think I think this would be something you benefit from. I don't think there's an answer that we can give you on this call that is the perfect way. I think, unfortunately, it takes um, time and it takes maybe a professional to be there in the moment with you, which is is very difficult. I'm sorry I couldn't be more helpful.
4: It's time.
2: All right. Well, thank
3: you so much, ladies. This
2: was a very awesome uh, seminar. And you guys, everybody had great questions. I'm sorry we couldn't get to everyone. Um, so before we go, I have the closing closing CEU code, and that is 88462. And um, yes, thank you again, everyone, and
4: um, I hope everybody has a good day.
1: Thank you, folks. I really appreciate
5: this.